and welcome back to Ag Watchers with uh, myself, Andrew Whitelaw, and Matt Dalglish. Today we've got a special guest, one of our special correspondents from uh, from Western Australia, Nathaniel Ahare. Uh, things are things are getting a little bit dicey over there, so we thought it was a good time to get Nathaniel on to see what's actually happening in the West, hear about it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Nathaniel, how's it going? Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. No worries. I think, first of all, Matt, you're one to cover off on a few things before we start, you know, interrogating Nathaniel. Yeah, that's right. Um, just, uh, I'll go quick because um, the last uh, podcast we put out was um, not, not that long ago and I'd already spoken a bit about price action and it's the start of the week, so I won't go into too much in terms of price. But the big thing over the weekend was obviously Victoria going to stage four lockdown. Um, there has been some suggestion that um, there's going to be adjustments to some industries and, and abattoirs are one of the ones that were mentioned in um, Daniel Andrews' presser over the weekend. So we haven't yet, when, when we're recording this one, we haven't yet heard what the exact uh, scenario will be, whether they're going to be closing down abattoirs or whether they're just going to be, you know, kind of limiting what they can do in Victoria, in, particularly those ones that are in the hotspots. Um, but, uh, you know, this, look, the assumption is, and I had a look at some of the slaughter figures from last week, um, and we have seen a, a big uh, uh, slide off in, in processed numbers of lambs, particularly for Victoria. Um, but when you look at the overall eastern states, um, New South Wales took up a bit of, quite a bit of the slack by the look of things. So across the whole of the eastern states, the numbers were so on the softer side, but they were pretty, pretty similar to what they were in the last few weeks. So it, it looks like at the moment, um, you know, because the abattoir situation is, uh, is limited mainly to parts of Victoria, and we're already in a very tight season for, for cattle and, and sheep. We're not really seeing um, the impact on price at the, the sale yard uh, you know, with, these, with these closes of abattoirs. I think um, even if we do get a bit more of a, uh, a restriction on the Victorian ones, uh, provided we can get livestock across the borders uh, reasonably well, there should be enough slack, you know, certainly in New South Wales, and even if we need to go further into Queensland, um, to be able to process. So it shouldn't play out to be as disruptive as what we saw when the US closed. Um, if we can keep it within Victoria and fairly short term um, disruptions to the abattoirs down here. Um, the real concern is if, uh, if it breaks out further into New South Wales and potentially into Queensland and gets into the abattoirs, that's where we might cause some, see some significant problems there. But I, I can't see that happening all at the one time. So we may be, may be lucky enough to skate through this one and not have too much of an impact on price is what I'm thinking, but just got to keep an eye on, on how things go, I think. Yeah, and I think it's just everything hinges upon what Daniel Andrews says today about whether those abattoirs remain open or not. And I think we saw, we got an announcement today that Hazel Dean's, the chicken abattoir up at, uh, just on the outskirts of Bendigo, it's had a few positive cases as well and then it's shut down and a lot of staff had to... Uh, go into isolation while they await tests, but it's just a, a running nightmare, this, isn't it, in terms of planning? Yeah. The good thing is, though, that um, it looks like the Victorian government, the authority, health authorities are making sure that they're getting this essential service in, in the abattoir space. They're getting the tests done very quickly. We saw with um, Diamond Valley Pork, they, they got their tests done very quickly to see who was infect, infected and who wasn't. Um, so it looks like industry is working well with, with the government and relevant authorities um, in the health space to make sure they get these tests done quickly and that the abattoirs can get back online very quickly. So hopefully, same scenario for um, 
of Hazeldean that, that they can get a good handle on how much um, the virus has went through the, the system there and then get back online as quick as possible. So, Nathaniel, on, on to you. <laughs> and we've got the dogs in the background. <laughs> That's in the moment. Nah, so, so, how is, so things have been a bit dry. Like on the East Coast, things were dry in July, but we had quite a good bit of rainfall early on, and things are, things are not too bad on the East Coast. But we keep hearing that the West Coast, things are really sort of not kicking along all that well. What's, uh, what's the general consensus on the crop in your neck of the woods? Oh, first, first of all, Nathaniel, who are you, actually? That's a good one. Good question. I'm a farm management consultant in, um, based out of Perth in WA, and I consult to mainly mixed farmers, so grain producers and grain slash livestock producers. Um, yeah, primarily sheep producers, I suppose. Uh, don't have, don't do much in the cattle space, but um, yeah, sit across grains and, and sheep. Um, but so yeah, getting to the to the the growing season over here, it's to, to sound very um, cliche, it's on a knife's edge. We're getting a bit of rain at the moment. Uh, it's rain sort of pushed into the the lower south over the weekend or yesterday and this morning, and really everyone's I suppose fingers crossed for the front that's pushing through next this coming Sunday, hopefully and Monday to wet up the north and the and the central. Because that rainfall that we got, was that expected, this rainfall that was on the weekend? Was, or was it a little bit less than, than expected? No, well, it was, by and large, it was expected. But um, sort of came, came in later than, than growers had anticipated. So I think people had given up hope of getting good rainfall until sort of late last night, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it seems to be there's a few old spots that have got 25 mils and obviously as the further you go in, it sort of obviously drops back quite a little bit. But what, what bits are, like obviously the WA grain belt is, is huge. What, what, what areas are, are in most need at the moment? Well, to be blunt, everywhere east of the Great, Asian, uh, Great uh, Southern Highway, the Albany Highway, um, right through, you know, the central wheat belt, the Great Southern, down the south coast. In fact, the south coast is probably one of the worst, the worst affected. So, so like you're, you're sort of mungling up Ravensthorpe, that type of area? Yeah, Ravensthorpe back to Albany is, is pretty tough. Um, the north, it seems to be, you know, is okay. Just looking around the rainfall, uh, Marcus, so no, no one's sort of tracking greater than sort of decile two, decile three for growing season rainfall as an, across the board. You know, the only regions that seem to be doing okay are, you know, the grain growers down in the deeper southwest, so Franklin River back north to sort of wandering. Yep. Um, but look, everyone inland could do with a very good drink, uh, hopefully this weekend. Well, how, how, look, some of the forecasts just now, and when you look at the bomb forecast, you've always got to take it with a, a pinch of salt. I think is, I think the main main thing I've heard from farmers this year is that, that the forecast just seemed to disappear, which is ultra frustrating. But some of those forecasts are looking like the next eight days, you know, 25 to 50 mils over the next eight days. 
that would be enough to do it, enough to put some surety there. That will certainly uh, shore up production, I suppose, for the and, and keep the crop healthy for the next three to four weeks. Yeah, sort of 20 50 mils would be, would be a game changer. Just driving around the different regions over the last two or three weeks, there's certainly uh, potential there. The crops are well established, well established at the end of May, early June. Um, but at the moment, it, it's cosmetic, I suppose. But uh, <coughs> crops look good, but there's nothing in the tank. So, plant available moisture is fast running out. Um, even people that had summer rainfall, I assume that that's that's been uh, tapped into well and truly by now. So, yeah, this this front on the weekend, I suppose there's, there's a lot of there's a lot hanging hanging on this the outcome of the front coming through Sunday Monday. So, if, like I always think, it's it's pretty pointless really talking about production estimates at this point of the year for Australia, because pretty much anything can happen. But if we look back the last three years, we've got 2017, what seven and a half million tons. 2018, just slightly over 10 million tons. And this year could be sort of anywhere between between five and nine, couldn't it? Like it could be, could be anyone's guess at this point of time. Absolutely, I, I still think there's potential to uh, go close to last year, um, which was a touch over 11 million tons. Um, so I don't think we've chucked the baby out with the bathwater just yet. I suppose, as you said, anything can happen from this point in time. But I think we know the potential is capped at average. It's certainly not going to be above average. No, no. As a what, result, what, what about what about barley? Did yes. many did, did many people like harvest? Oh, not harvest. Sorry, seeding was pretty much close to complete in a lot of areas when that uh, when that tariff announcement came out in the end of May. Did anyone change their planting based on that, or was it just already planned in advance and they just carried on as normal? Interesting question. Talking to my clients through that period of um, angst and uncertainty, uh, that most of the barley was in the ground, uh, and I suppose the only alternative—well, not the only alternative—but given the fact that the season was dry at that point in time, sowing more canola um, wasn't much of an option. We represented far more risk than sowing barley that was going to be worth $200 a tonne potentially, come harvest. The two alternatives being wheat and oats, on face value, they they hadn't, didn't, they didn't really, there wasn't really an uptick in plantings and talking, and obviously through my clients, my client base, there was no genuine switch. Um, I think, as I said, most of the barley was in the ground so that you can't un unplant it. No. You sort of you've made your bed and you have to sleep in it. And I, you know, as a farm management consultant, it's I like the idea of chopping and changing commodities while you're planting. Um, you know, we sort of set a plan at the start, plan at the start of the year, plan that sort of multi multi year plan, and generally try and stick to it. Because if if you look at the price, what is it, two forty five for new crop or thereabouts for for barley, and it's really sat there for almost three months now 
because it because it fell pretty sharply straight after the announcement and it recovered a little bit. But that historically, two forty five between two forty five and two sixty wouldn't necessarily be that bad a price. No, and in fact, with you know an aggressive sellers at Bali around two fifty two sixty historically, because it does represent a good price and does represent good profit. So yeah, the price at the moment is not exciting, but we're also getting over the the hangover of enjoying three hundred dollars a ton plus for the last two, two years or so because of the East Coast drought. So there's some psychology around around. Selling a grain, obviously, and and particularly coming off, um, you know, we've gone from we've gone from the heavens to the gutter very quickly, or what feels like the gutter uh, with feed barley. But we, you know, because yeah. memories are short. Correct. That's the thing. You can only remember the last two years of, of really good prices. And what's the, what's the saying? It's the new new. Well, it, well, it, well, it never is the new new, is it? When it comes to pricing, everyone expects prices to stay in the heavens forever. So, so yeah, but in terms of, you, you obviously got sheep clients as well. What's the big issues in, in sheep at the moment? Um, in the very short term, uh, pasture growth, obviously. And in the, in the medium term, so I suppose September, October onwards is water. Okay. We've had a couple of dry, dry growing seasons in the south. Um, and that's led to on-farm water, water storage to be run right down. Um, so, you know, number of clients were carting water most of last summer to sustain their flock, and they're staring down the barrel of doing the same again this coming summer because we haven't had any good runoff um, through the winter so far. Hopefully, this front this weekend can provide some runoff, but it certainly won't save. No. save people from having to cut water and spend spend more money on uh, water infrastructure to, to, to get through this summer so that sort of leads to a broader issue it's leading to a broader issue which is uh, the fact that you guys are providing well, the east coast is providing a very good alternative market for breeding sheep and we've seen quite a number of sheep cross the border all year and continue to cross the border from what I've been told, and if we don't get good rain over the next sort of three to four weeks, five weeks, there's probably going to be even more breeding sheep move across the border. So, we're yeah, the, the sheep, uh, the sheep situation, livestock situation in the uh, broad agricultural region of the southwest is uh, is becoming quite, wouldn't say untenable, but certainly very tough. Tense. Yeah. And what about the live export? That's obviously the the big concern, one of the concerns at the moment from a larger scale industry sort of thing. What's your client's viewpoints on, on the, the moratorium? And Well, um, the moratorium is what it is, I suppose. We're stuck with it for the time being. It's certainly, there's certainly a bit of a scramble towards the end of April to, to move stock, which is a tr traditionally a period where there's quite a, a bit of liquidity in the sheep market because the croppers are getting ready to plant or are planting. So there's a squeeze in, in terms of hectares, but now there's a squeeze in terms of market. So that, that, that squeeze is being amplified. Um, 
the start, the start of our growing season. Um, the interesting thing, will be, I suppose, will be to observe what does happen coming out of the moratorium into our summer or into our spring as to whether there's as much activity from the exporters, whether they're going to other markets because of the, the lack of supply or the, sorry, the dwindling supply of the WA anyway. Um, I think you know the, the supply issue will potentially amplify the moratorium in the short term because there's no point jumping straight back into WA if there's going to be, at a point in time, if there's going to be a lack of supply or lack of quality stock coming out of the spring to export. So if there's no liquidity or there's no rush to get back to back to WA is there. Matt, you got anything to add? You've done a you've done a bit on live export recently. Yeah, I mean that's one of the concerns and, and Nathaniel's um has kind of gave a good summary of it is is the the dwindling supply there in WA and it's you know you're already at a stage where it's a you know it's a small and it's an isolated market to a degree and it a lot of the um, a lot of the um, offtake hinges on that live export being there through the year um, and one of the things we've looked at when we've, we've done our analysis on it in the past Andrew um, was just how the how the moratorium and it's a three month one and sometimes can extend out for a few few more weeks depending upon circumstance we saw that last year so it can sometimes almost go as long as four months um, through that whole time you've got sections of the supply chain that don't have any work and and you know traditionally when the moratorium wasn't there it was the the period where you'd have shearing teams that weren't as busy as what they might have been other times of the year that get carried through um, you know that winter time by the live export um, stuff they're doing you know, preparing shit for live export. so if they're not they're not having any shipments going out through our winter or the Northern Hemisphere summer, then um, you've got whole teams in certain you know, regional areas that are off work for you know, two, three, four months nearly. Um, you know, you've got transport operators that are very reliant, some that are you know, totally reliant on, on the live export um, transports that, that, you know, that go, because you know, there are more transports in the live export space than what it is just your general kind of stuff that they go you know, multiple, multiple kind of trips sometimes in terms of where they move the animals around. So, you know, you've got a flow on effect um, to a whole lot of the supply chain. And um, if we continue to get these kind of issues and you overlay that, overlay those um, live export issues on the fact that you've got a difficult season as it is and the sheep box shrinking and there's less shearers available, it just starts to become a bit of a question in some people's minds is um, do we even bother uh, with that? Do we just stick to cropping and not worry so much about the sheep side of things? and you know, it's one of those concerns that we've got longer term that if um, they can't get this live export space right and get the moratorium right, um, uh, you know, does it does the industry over there in WA dwindle away and, and, and it ends up kind of being one of those things that, uh, you know, just becomes too hard and people throw their hands up and, and, and vacate. Um, that's a, it's a longer term concern. Um, I'm not sure, Nathaniel, if you're seeing anyone in your group of clients that are, that are kind of you know mixed mixed enterprises that, that have a bit to do with live ex, are they starting to question whether it's something they want to be in for the long haul? Is it just becoming too difficult? Absolutely, Matt. I, I think at the moment that we've got this amazing opportunity to offload breeding stock at record prices, and that's the carrot and the stick is the fact that we don't have enough water uh, to get through summer. Uh, but, so that. That's 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 driving the decision making at the moment, um, 
and it's also also driving around looking at some blown out pastures and wind eroded paddocks over the last sort of three or four weeks. Some some farmers that are will continue to to maintain a sheep enterprise are certainly still looking at running down their numbers from a risk management point of view, as in so we don't have the risk of having wind eroded pastures when we have a dry start like we have had. So that, you know, there's an asset or natural resource management concern um, as well. And as I said, we've got this amazing opportunity to sell sheep at record prices. Um, Looking through the supply chain here as well, there's been some significant investment over the last sort of 12 or 18 months, and it's going to be a continued investment. So you know, we can count four processes that have invested significantly over the last 12 months or are investing at the moment. Um, you know, WAMCO is probably the grower cooperative processor in WA that they have invested uh, heavily over the last several years. Um, and a few of the other processes are now playing catch up. Um, so that that sort of suggests that we you know, they'll be around. You know, there will be competition for a while, as in the medium to long term. If they're looking to recoup that investment, but um, yeah, the, the, the shipping I suppose is one that can move very quickly, isn't it? They can. They can pivot into other markets very quickly. Well, this is my understanding of it. They can pivot into other markets very quickly um, and just trade out of South America or trade out of parts of Africa as well as. Well, that's that's the thing with a lot of commodities. Like, you can switch them. You can switch origins fairly quickly. You know, we saw that with Trump when uh, when they had that trade scuffle with with China. Uh, suddenly. Uh, Brazilian soybeans were in favour into China, and that's the same. Like, what's the Matt? You'll know it, but what is the second largest sheep exporter? Is it not like Somalia or? They're actually, they're actually the, the Sudan, Somalia. They're, they're, that Horn of Africa there is the largest, actually. So, and in, when you're looking at that from an export perspective of live sheep, that is. Um, but then you've got an exact scenario that uh, Nathaniel was saying there too, and, and you, Andrew, about the switching out. Um, if you look back, you know, um, what is it, five, six years, maybe seven now, Saudi Arabia was our biggest, um, uh, you know, uh, importing nation in terms of live sheep. And then, um, you know, when... That... It's also our biggest destination for barley as well. Correct. <laughs> that all changed, you know, that all changed after the introduction of um, some of the SCAS uh, requirements that the Saudis decided they didn't want to be told. Um, you know, how to, how to kind of um, manage the export of live sheep into the country um, by another country. So they, they look to alternatives and now they're, I mean, they're the biggest importer of sheep, live sheep in the world and, and pretty much take a lot of it from um, those African nations now. Um, so you can see how quickly the dynamic can change. And just looking, looking down, the, down the, looking into the future, I suppose, some of these competitors are also learn, learning how to feed our feed grain more efficiently to livestock. So the, the issues around quality may not be, or that our competitive advantage, which is quality, um, at certain times of the year, will potentially be eroded, I suppose, over time. As the well, Indonesians and the, Philipp the Philippines and Vietnam 
starting to import more and more of our feed grain to feed to our cattle effectively in feedlots. Um, and that's the thing, the technology moves around the world. You know, developing countries learn from our work and there's plenty of consultants out there passing on that knowledge to developing nations. That's just, that's just the way it is. So it was technology transfer. Look at, look at Russia. Look at Russian, again, I don't know we're talking about sheep, but the same thing applies to grains. You know, we've seen all sorts of Western technology suddenly go into the Black Sea region, so the former Soviet Union, and the yields just go through the roof. We'll see that same technology going into Kenya and the rest of Africa. And it's just, it's just the natural thing. Like, technology is so transferable nowadays. So, Nathaniel, I had, uh, I was, well, Matt and I spent a bit of time on Twitter, as a lot of people know, and I, and I came across a picture, and I, and I thought to myself, geez, I recognize the back of that head, you know? And it was a picture of you in the, uh, the WA State Parliament, talking with all the bigwigs at the, uh, from, from, the, uh, from the leadership of, of the WA government. What was that all about? Uh, well, I wasn't doing much talking. I was doing a lot of listening. Um, with that, those, I tend to stay off Twitter. I've got a handle, but I want to watch from a distance as opposed to getting involved in the conversation. Um, look, I was at a WA Farmers Grains Council meeting. And I'm a grains councillor for WA Farmers, which is a lobby group here in WA, obviously. Virtue. Um, and we had our meeting in our July meeting, our six monthly meeting, we had it at the Department of Premier Cabinet because we, well, our executive executive officer, Jess Wallace, had managed to organise three ministerial briefings on the same day. And so to facilitate the ministerial briefings, we were lucky enough to have our meeting at the Department of Premier Cabinet, which was quite an upgrade from the usual uh, meeting room at WA Farmers headquarters in Belmont. Um, so yeah, look, that was that was a great opportunity to get in front of um, the Minister for Workplace Relations, obviously the Minister for Agriculture, and the Minister for Transport all on the same day in the same room briefing oh, us on what's what, going on. what is the main obviously there's gonna be a hell of a lot of different policies. What is the main thing that WA Farmers Grains Council is angling for at the moment? Well, Look, I'm not the, not the key spokesperson, but yeah, I yeah, suppose yeah. We, we are, WA Farmers Grains are very focused on uh, obviously some of the market access issues going on at the, at, that are in play at the moment um, and pesticide, access to pesticides um, that also roll into market access, I suppose. Um, and probably in the short term, our, our focus is on labour because we rely heavily on um, seasonal workers or grain, grain sector in WA relies heavily on seasonal workers, especially skilled hair drivers, which is, you know, yeah. um, and they come from Europe and, and New Zealand predominantly, so we're, we're facing a bit of a, a bit of an issue with um, hard borders at the moment, which is... Unfortunate. So short term, yeah, labour issues in the sector, bigger picture stuff, market access, 
and, and, and uh, our right to use certain pesticides or all pesticides. Um, I suppose that's, that's the snapshot of WA farmers. Yeah. So that probably covers it all from, from WA point of view for this one. Um, Nathaniel, it's just a case of fingers crossed that over the week, next week, we get all that rainfall that's forecast. Hopefully the bomb, you know, hopefully when the bomb got the cranes out and started writing over that map, hopefully they, uh, they projected the right numbers and we'll get a, we'll, uh, we'll get big falls of, 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 you know, 25 to 50 mils and hopefully at the top end of that range. Uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's a very sort of interesting time. It's like you said, you said it perfectly. I know it's a bit of a cliche, the, uh, the knife edge, but it really is. August is what makes the crop largely, isn't it? Especially if it's been dry and uh, really the next four weeks is going to be what, uh, what makes the difference. So, so I want to thank you for, thank you for coming along, Nathaniel. And uh, we'll probably get you on in a few, a few months time to sort of update us on, you know, whether it's a, you know, a 10 million ton wheat crop or a, or a 5 million ton wheat crop. And we're, we can either have champagne or we can have, you know, a bottle of whiskey to sort of drown our sorrows. So. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, keep praying for rain. That's, that's all you can do. So thanks very much again. Uh, we'll probably leave it there. Ciao for now.